You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision Live. I'm the host today, Ed Harrison, and I have the distinct pleasure of talking to Andrea Steno Larson, who is the global chief strategist at Nordea. Welcome back to Real Vision, Andreas. Thanks a lot, Ed. I, you know, I think the last time that we spoke was in July. Actually, I, we already have a question here from people in Real Vision Live talking about that. Well, I'm going to save that for the end. But a lot has changed in the past uh, several months. I think the the way I would describe what's going on now, what people are thinking about, is they're thinking about uh, the reflation trade. Uh, they're thinking about the fact that uh, we're going to get this vaccine pretty soon. Uh, we have the vaccine, but soon people will be entirely vaccinated. Economies will open up. And depending upon what your outlook is, that's uh, good or bad from an inflation perspective and from a bond perspective. Uh, how is that? What's your macro framing there? And what does that mean for currencies more generally? Uh, I generally think that the reflation trade is sort of running on fumes by now. Um, I guess the last bit of uh, gasoline that this trade could could get would be a, a full reopening of the economy into April and May. Uh, but as soon as we approach the actual reopening, then I'm actually starting to doubt whether there is any fuel left in the reflation story. Uh, obviously, markets are forward-looking, so they've tried to, to pencil in this reopening of the global economy for like three, four quarters in a row now. Uh, and therefore, I my ba my base case is basically that markets will start to to price in the the next macro theme once the reopening actually happens uh so macro wise obviously we will get strong growth this year but markets have already sort of pre-parted yeah and you know uh, speaking of strong growth the one thing that's vexing for me when I look underneath the hood, let, let, you know, the jobs data came out for the U.S. today. Mm -hmm. And what I saw basically was a jobs print that was driven almost entirely by the leisure and hospitality sectors, meaning yeah. that you know, they're the toggle in terms of stop and start uh, during this pandemic era. When we stop, uh, jobs fall out in that sector. When we start, uh, jobs are added back in that sector. But if you look at all the other sectors, there really isn't gangbuster growth in jobs relative to what you see in the GDP prints. So, you know, the Atlanta Fed is talking about 10% GDP growth in Q1. That's what we're tracking on their GDP Ooh. now, uh, now cast. But really, when you look at the numbers from jobs, when you look at initial jobless claims, it doesn't really look that good. No, I, I perfectly agree. And I mean, even with uh, the strong report we saw today, uh, I think we will need, uh, is it 40 or similar reports before we are back to uh, the same amount of aggregate jobs that we had prior to the crisis. Uh, so this was obviously an okay report, but we will need uh, a lot more of them to, to get back to anything near normal levels for employment. 
So when you uh, break up the world, as we think about where we are in the reflation trade, just from an economic perspective, where are the different buckets? How would you break it down? Would you separate uh, Europe, Japan, China, United States, emerging markets? Where are the places that are uh, uh, demonstrably different in terms of where they are in the trajectory toward reopening and the pace at which growth is going right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, very interesting to see that China saw outflows for the first time um, since the inauguration of the COVID-19 crisis uh, this week. Um, and uh, it is probably a signal that China is uh, already starting to lose momentum. Uh, so China is is obviously ahead of the rest of the world in terms of the business cycle. Uh, I would argue that Europe follows China by by roughly two quarters of, of time lag, uh, while the U.S. is a bit more disconnected from the Chinese cycle. Um, so China is already losing momentum. Europe will start to lose momentum towards the end of the year, and uh, I think the U.S. will actually end up as the relative winner, uh, also due to, to relative FX developments that we've seen in 2020. Uh, the weaker dollar is um, a, a positive for the U.S. economy, uh, and the stronger euro is definitely a negative for, for the eurozone, especially since the eurozone is so dependent on export. So, um, yeah, to rank it, China is already losing momentum. Europe will soon follow, but, and the U.S. will be the relative winner, I think. Yeah, you know, interestingly, when you say China, the first thing that comes to mind, uh, we have a few charts that you sent over is one of the charts that you had in terms of the Bloomberg Commodity Index year on year change versus the China credit impulse, the 12 month change. There's a, uh, uh, you know, a lead and a lag there. And hmm. obviously, China is a big part of the commodities complex demand. My question is, what are you showing in that chart, given what you just said about China potentially rolling over to a degree, you know, growth uh, there stagnating relative to where they were when they first came out of uh, the lockdowns? I mean, we know that China is a very credit-fueled credit economy, um, and therefore I love this credit impulse index uh, since it is a, a, a good leading indicator of Chinese growth. Uh, and therefore, also a lot of other things, such as uh, the commodity cycle, and uh, even also maybe euro, euro dollar. Um, the point here being that the credit cycle is rolling over in China. We have fairly firm evidence of that now. So, from a momentum perspective, we will see less credit growth, uh, and that usually leads to less uh, actual growth in China. It leads to um, declining momentum in commodity prices, and it leads to a stronger dollar versus the euro down the line. Uh, I think six, nine months from now, uh, we will see lower commodity prices and a stronger dollar. Um, right. Yeah. And so when you look at euro dollar, uh, do you have any targets there for where it is from today, which is around the 120 level? Yeah. I, I mean, we uh, we have a short-term target of, uh, of 117.50 uh, as a current trade idea. And uh, then we target levels around 115 by, by year end. Um, so it's kind of a firm conviction of ours that the dollar will regain its footing uh, into the second half of this year. And we already start betting on it now. Yeah. And when you look at uh, what's going on with the uh, DXY, the dollar index, which is very euro heavy, mm. uh, it's, you know, it, it seems like it's put in a base at the bottom and it's trending up. You know, I've been looking at that from a bond market perspective, but 
what you just said say, says that there are other uh, currents there as well that potentially are helping the, U the U.S. dollar move up. Yeah. Uh, obviously, one uh, clear factor is the fixed income market. Um, uh, it is clear that the um, interest rate market in, um, in the U.S. is much more alive than uh, what it is in, in Europe. Um, so from, from this simple perspective of, of interest rate spreads, uh, I think the dollar will see some tailwinds. Uh, but the other reason um, for the dollar strengthening could be related to, um, to what's going on in the treasury market these days. Uh, so we will actually get um, a big chunk of dollar liquidity added to the commercial banking system over the next five months. It's been a huge topic. Um, but there is um, a what I would call a caveat to this story, um, uh, which is the supplementary leverage ratio. I think this has been the biggest story this week at all in the Treasury market. Um, and the issue is that the Fed has not promised to prolong the supplementary leverage ratio relief um, uh, beyond 31st of March. Uh, and what could happen uh, if they don't prolong it is basically that primary dealers will have to offload a big chunk of treasuries into markets uh, since they um, will basically not uh, be able to hold as big an inventory if this um, capital relief is not prolonged. So, I mean, uh, when you think about the uh, repo market uh, blowing up at some point, uh, when you think about other things, people talking about money markets, potentially trading below zero because of the plumbing. This is yet another issue within the plumbing of the U.S. Uh, system, the financial system, that potentially could have wide-ranging uh, effects on markets and rates in those markets. Yes. And I guess these are issues that have been built due to huge QE programs for too long. Um, so uh, obviously, if the Fed decides to solve this situation with even more bond purchases, then they will basically just postpone the issue to a later point. Um, so I, I wouldn't at least be a fan of the Fed trying to, to solve this potential bond market bonanza with uh, an increased QE pace or an operation twist, because I simply think that they would just increase the issue down the road. Right. And just uh, so that uh, the viewers know, we have a chart here which shows the uh, reserves in the system, uh, and it shows the primary dealer positions for government securities. And uh, in the 2021 period, we can see a divergence there in terms of the number of reserves and the primary dealer positions. Uh, and then there's a scenario that's penciled out in yellow uh, so that uh, that's what we're talking about right now. Yeah. And if you look at the right-hand axis, you, you can see that uh, if this scenario unfolds and uh, if we also assume that the SLR relief is not prolonged, then maybe as much as $300 billion worth of treasuries will have to be um, taken off the balance sheet from primary dealers, which is quite a lot. And what does that mean? Let's say that the, uh, let's call this a tail risk, downside risk. What does that mean for uh, the bond markets and then also for currency markets as a result? Uh, I think this scenario would be vastly dollar positive. Um, and I also think it would lead to at least the long end of the uh, yield curve um, steepening up even further. Uh, I, I could imagine the 10 year. 10-year 10, uh, 10 Treasury yield going to 2% in this scenario, even before summer. Right. 
And given what uh, Chairman Powell said yesterday, which is basically that, you know what, uh, we see these yields going up, I'm looking at them, but uh, this is a nothing burger. I'm not really that concerned at this point yet. Basically, bad things have to happen before I step in to the fray, and bad things haven't happened yet. What, what do you make of this outcome, given that, that policy stance that he gave yesterday? I firstly think that Powell basically um, sees these high interest rates um, reflecting a better uh, outlook. Uh, so that's not a big issue in itself. Uh, I was not surprised personally that he uh, refrained from commenting on this SLR relief. Um, it is basically a topic for Richard Clarita or uh, Leo Brainerd. Um, Paul is, um, to my understanding, more or less clueless on, on this topic. So, so I wasn't surprised that he didn't mention it. Uh, but generally speaking, I don't think he's too scared of high interest rates right now. Um, and uh, as long as high interest rates, they reflect a better outlook, then why not just accept them? And do you think that those uh, high interest rates reflect a better outlook only, or is there cert a certain reflexivity? Because, you know, basically what we've seen in global markets recently is, is that uh, the toggle seems to be rates. Rates go up. It has an impact on currency markets. It also has an impact on discount rates and, therefore, on how people are reflecting you know, what their asset allocation is between bonds and stocks. And then also, even within the equity universe, which equities they want to hold relative to other equities. Yeah, I mean, clearly, as, as soon as we get uh, real rates on the move, then it will start to have cross-asset repercussions. Um, I've already started to become slightly worried about equity longs myself uh, due to the move in interest rates. I'm not saying that we're there yet, but uh, we are closing in on um, on a territory in real rates that could lead to a sell-off. Um, so, of course, it will have cross-asset repercussions if the Fed allows real rates to, to increase before summer. And I think the big uh, test here for the Fed is how they tackle um, the inflation that will arrive in, in Q2 uh, rhetorically. Uh, since it is, it is basically so much easier to say that you uh, accept uh, inflation overshooting as long as you're actually undershooting. Uh, but once you are overshooting for real, um, then it's simply not as easy to just say that uh, you will allow it and not do anything about it. Right. And so talk to me then about inflation, especially in the context of commodity prices. Um, uh, you're looking at commodity prices going down eventually as a result of uh, what you're seeing in China in particular. But between now and then, what happens and how is it reflected in terms of inflation, especially within the United States? Uh, I mean, if we look at commodity prices in year-over-year -year terms by April, then we will have uh, massive inflation in the, in the headline index, uh, simply due to the fact that, for example, the oil price is, is up by more than 100% since uh, April 2020. Uh, so obviously, we will have headline inflation maybe as, as high as, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it going above 3.5%, maybe even to 4% by, by early summer. Um, and then um, uh, we will also have spillovers to the core inflation index. Uh, I actually think that we have signs um, of 
inflation coming also in core terms. Uh, this survey on the screen is, is, is one of the reasons why I hold that view. Uh, if you ask uh, small and medium-sized uh, companies, they actually have pretty aggressive price plans. And we haven't seen that uh, since prior to the uh, great financial crisis in 08. So we need to look, look at least a decade back to find similar inflation pressures as the one we will see in, uh, once we will see in, in Q2. So the basic effect as a result of the lockdowns and the meltdown in commodities last year, plus what you're seeing in small and medium-sized businesses in the U.S., are going to lead to price pressures in the middle of the year uh, before any sort of rollover in commodities takes hold. And that's going to drive uh, rates, and it's also going to drive currencies, you think? Yeah. I think the second quarter will be uh, a quarter of high interest rates. Uh, I don't even think it's, it's far-fetched to to talk about this 2% target in the 10-year uh, Treasury yield by, by early summer. I think that's clearly in scope. Um, and then uh, I think it, it will lead to a stronger dollar uh, and ultimately also to weaker performance by, uh, by commodity currencies. Right. You know, back in 2018, uh, we had uh, this uh, a lot of talk about the end of the, the bond bull market. I'm just looking at a chart now of the U.S. 10-year. and what I'm seeing is a level of 270 as the year began and this whole talk began. Eventually, you know, by October, we got to a level almost uh, up to 325, you know, 314. We're only talking like 40 basis points, really. And then, you know, the Fed during that period was tightening. They said they were going to tighten three times that year. The markets only believed they would tighten two times. They ended up tightening four. And it's that fourth tightening that they did, the fourth quarter point hike in December that had everything just completely unravel. Credit markets, equity markets, um, that, was, that was then. Uh, how does what is happening now compare, given what you're talking about in terms of inflation in the background? How can the Fed stand pat? Uh, against that backdrop? Wouldn't the markets front run the Fed's tightening as a result of that kind of activity? Yeah, uh, I think you're right that the next move that we will see in, in the dollar curve uh, will be a move that reflects an earlier liftoff uh, of the Fed funds rate. Um, so if, if we compare it to 2013, I actually think that's a pretty interesting analogy as well, uh, with the taper tantrum, uh, when Bernanke mentioned tapering for the first time, then we saw in particular four-year rates, uh, five-year rates, that sector on the yield curve rallying um, as a sort of a reflection of a potential much more aggressive liftoff from the Federal Reserve three to four years out in time. Uh, I think that is the next step for the yield curve to reflect that it's clearly possible that the Fed hikes um, relatively soon. Uh, in, in, in my base case, they will hike already in 2022. Um, so um, yeah, that's the next step for markets to reflect it in three to five year rates, I would say. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I was looking at that, you know, three year rates look like they're going nowhere by, by and large. You know, right now I'm looking at them at 31.7 basis points. The five-year rate, however, has been relatively volatile, and that's where we're seeing the, the toggle here. So it's mm -hmm. as if the zero bound is, is uh, at uh, overnight is pinning rates out to two years, some movement in the three years, but five is really where you're seeing the action. Mm. 
And I guess it makes sense if if we assume that uh, the Fed will have to debate its balance sheet by summer uh, when inflation is clearly above target. Then I think the natural next step would be for for markets to reflect uh, uh, the move in um, in three to five years interest rates um, as as markets will have to price in an earlier lift off of uh, the Fed funds rate. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, you know, let's go back to the discussion about the economic uh, cycle, because as I heard you saying it, China was first, uh, potentially Europe comes after, and then the United States uh, bringing it up, you know, with lots of, uh, of GDP growth. Right now, it seems like Europe is in a double-dip recession, and mm. they're lagging in terms of their vaccination. Does that give you any reason to reverse the order such that it's actually the U.S. Uh, and China, and, and uh, China, U.S., and then Europe lagging behind? Yeah, I mean, uh, my reflection on Europe was basically how Europe interlinked with the Chinese cycle. Uh, I perfectly agree with you that there are domestic issues in Europe that could uh, tilt that picture in a negative direction, clearly. Uh, first of all, on the vaccine front, um, the European Union has had a terrible negotiation scheme on, uh, on the vaccination front. Um, so that's clearly one reason why uh, Europe could could eventually lag behind. Uh, my impression is that parts of Europe um, will will do okay, uh, while other parts of Europe Europe will not. Um, uh, and here I'm thinking the classic North versus South um, sort of discrepancy. Uh, but uh, if we look to the U.S. Uh, and we take 2020 as a whole, then I'm fairly sure that the U.S will outperform Europe by miles uh, in growth terms um, and also in labor market terms. So, uh, of course, you could always debate the timing, but the sort of the bottom line, I perfectly agree to that the U.S. will outperform Europe this year. And where does Japan fall in in all of that? Uh, how are they doing? Uh, and also, what does that mean for their currency? I think the interesting thing here is that Japan has also increased its its ties with uh, with China trade wise. Uh, so Japan's economy is is also linked to to the Chinese cycle. And interestingly, if you look at, at Asia, they haven't really had what I would call huge issues with COVID. Uh, they've actually managed to um, to dance with the spread along the way, um, and therefore they they have sort of a less clear cyclical upturn now since they haven't had as clear a cyclical downturn as we've seen, for example, in Europe and in the US. Uh, a country, for example, as South Korea almost didn't have any GDP drop in 2020, which was quite quite impressive. Uh, so it's more of a flatlining trend compared to the volatility that we see elsewhere. Right. And, you know, uh, it also makes me think to a degree about inflation. And the reason is, is uh, it's somewhat convoluted. But, you know, we were talking a lot about uh, inflation in the United States in particular because of the NFIB survey, because of basing effects from last year, uh, et cetera. 
But when you think about uh, where inflation comes from in terms of the fiscal impulse, as an example, Japan has led in terms of uh, you know, the intersection of monetary and fiscal policy. This is something that we see in the United States with $1.9 trillion in stimulus coming forward, you know, quantitative easing, et cetera. This is a playbook that Japan has had. They didn't have any success in this, but people are starting to believe that the U.S. will have success. So yeah. how do you uh, put that framework on top of all the other things that are happening? And what does it mean in the context of what's happening in Japan and then as a comparison, what is happening in the United States? I think the big game changer in terms of inflation um, is that in 2020, uh, there were actually mechanisms being put in place that ensured that the uh, money printed in QE programs actually reached uh, either households or corporates. Uh, that's a game changer compared to how you conducted QE early on. Uh, earlier, QE was just an asset swap between um, uh, the central bank and the financial sector. Uh, while in 2020, you had direct transfers to households and you had very clear credit programs targeted for corporates. Uh, and we can see that uh, when we look at uh, measures of uh, commercial deposits in, in the banking system in the US, that the money actually reached the real economy this time around. And I think that's a both a positive game changer, but also an inflationary game changer. And uh, to my knowledge, uh, we haven't seen similar kind of action in Japan with with direct targeted uh, transfers to households, for example. That is clearly an inflationary policy. So Japan could maybe learn something from the U.S. here. Yeah, very interesting. Um, as we say all of this, I'm thinking uh, in my mind right before we got on that you were talking to me about your overall position for currencies and yeah. uh, and you know Japan was one of those currencies that you were looking at the way that I would describe what you told me was that uh, you were short the euro dollar you were looking relatively defensively in terms of longs at uh, JPY the Japanese mm. yen and the Swiss franc CHF and my question is uh, uh, why is that in the context of everything that we've been saying and uh, maybe you can give a little color particularly on the Swiss franc aspect of that, since we haven't talked about uh, the Swiss yeah. franc as a currency. Yeah, so currently we have two trade ideas open. We are short euro dollar and we are short Aussie versus Kiwi um, targets 117.50 uh, in euro dollar and uh, 104.30 in, um, in Aussie versus Kiwi. But I'm, I'm looking to add um, a position in either Japanese yen or um, Swiss franc. And I think the exact timing will be when commodities peak, uh, since it will um, uh, lead to a, uh, a haven uh, float from, um, uh, from this commodity declining story. Um, and, and my point here is that both um, the Japanese central bank and the Swiss central bank uh, are kind of stuck in a defensive mode. And one, once we see a roll down um, of the... Um, of the business cycle into the second half of the year, then I would actually argue that those are the two uh, central banks that will end up being sort of ultimately most hawkish in a, in a uh, relative um, comparison to other G10 central banks, since they don't really have anything to um, um, uh, left in the toolbox. And that's basically the case both for, for Swiss and, um, and Bank of Japan. 
So um, that that's the ultimate reasoning that the commodity cycle will peak. We will see um, a, a much less benign business cycle into the end of the year, uh, and therefore uh, those two currencies are in a, in a bright spot. But we haven't added the position yet. You know, um, I want to come back to this less benign business cycle concept. Uh, remind me in the conversation, but I also want to pivot for a second to uh, commodity currencies and to emerging markets, just because you mentioned Ooh. Kiwi, uh, Aussie, Cross, and uh, we haven't talked about emerging markets and all of this. Uh, why the situation with the uh, Aussie dollar and the Kiwi dollar, where you're short the Aussie dollar, and then what are you seeing in emerging market currencies? Uh, I, th I think the main reason why we are short Aussie versus uh, Kiwi dollar is that Australia is um, is clearly linked to the Chinese cycle uh, and also to the copper cycle. Um, so we are closing in on, on peaks uh, in that cycle, in my view. Uh, we are running on fumes by now. Therefore, we, we think timing is, uh, is good to, to look for shorts in Aussie versus Kiwi as a relative bet. In emerging markets, um, I have to admit that I'm, I'm seeing it as a risky bet right now, very risky bet, if I'm right on my calls on, on substantially higher uh, dollar interest rates into the second quarter. Um, basically, if we look to, back to 2013 during the taper tantrum, emerging market currencies were left very fragile. Uh, in particular, those currencies with um, a big current account deficit. Uh, Brazilian real is a good example of it. Uh, the, the Turkish lira is another re really good example of it. Uh, so those currencies with a huge current account deficit, I would, um, I would uh, basically, um, um, yeah, not not want to to go along those currently. I think it's too risky, simply. Right. Yeah. And, you know, since you mentioned Brazil, I think a good segue into where we think about the long term is Brazil, because over the short term or medium term, bad things are happening there that people are talking about. Because, you know, throughout this entire discussion, we've only mentioned the coronavirus uh, as yeah. a result of vaccines. And what I'm seeing in Brazil or the headlines coming out of Brazil is, is, is that we had this uh, Amazon Amazonian variant, uh, which has a number of mutations, which potentially help it evade uh, uh, detection by the antibodies in people's systems, and therefore could be negative in terms of the existing vaccine structure, could reinfect people who've had the vaccine. We saw that in one of the large Amazon cities in Brazil, and now Sao Paulo is in a lockdown. Um, that's, that doesn't speak to uh, the timetable that everyone's thinking about in terms of getting to the middle of 2021 and then having the all clear. Uh, wh what do you make of what's happening in Brazil just from the, the viral front? Uh, I think you're right that Brazil is in a really bad spot. Um, and then there is a really practical reason why as well. Uh, if, if you look at um, the virus seasonality, uh, I know that's been debated over and over and over again. Uh, but to me, there is a clear uh, correlation between uh, temperatures and the virus spread. And all countries on the southern hemisphere will basically be faced with a negative uh, temperature delta over the next three to four months, Brazil included, uh, which leaves uh, a sort of better environment for virus spreads, uh, for, for the virus spreading. Um, so Brazil is one clear case uh, that could um, 
uh, accelerate into um, summertime uh, on on our part of the planet. Uh, and uh, another few good examples are um, New Zealand and Australia. It, on charts, it looks it looks like they've managed to kill the virus spread completely. But you should remember that they've had their summer. Um, which is uh, the easiest period to keep the spread down. Um, so Brazil, other countries on the Southern Hemisphere will face a, a tough uh, few months upcoming. Yeah, and what about what does that mean in terms of the fall and winter in the Northern Hemisphere as we get to full vaccination? Is there the potential that given mutations, uh, given that, you know, not everyone's going to be vaccinated, that we still could see some residual impacts that result in lockdowns, uh, at least on a localized basis in Northern Hemisphere places in the fall and the winter of 2021-22? I sincerely hope not. <laughs> uh, but uh, if, you, um, if you look at the current vaccination pace, then I think there is a decent possibility of what I call herd immunity by Midsummer, but uh, the issue is, of course, that we still don't know whether, for example, the Brazilian mutation is truly covered by the current vaccines. Um, we only have some early tests tests in a lab from Moderna. Um, they they look promising, but uh, I I wouldn't argue that uh, that we know that the current vaccination scheme will be able to um, to cover the Brazilian mutation, for example. So I think the sad news here is that we. Uh, we should probably grow accustomed to, to um, a seasonal vaccination scheme uh, on the COVID front. And hopefully that is enough to, to, um, to keep uh, lockdowns away. But uh, I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. Yeah, and your, your head of government, Meta Frederiksen, she's down in Israel, or yeah. at least going there, is my understanding. What, what's she doing there? Uh, and how, what, how's she going? What sort of impact will that have in terms of understanding about what's what huge vaccination does? Um, I mean, she's down there to try to win some votes, I guess. <laughs> First of all, but uh, I mean, secondly, we all know that Israel um, is the front runner on the on the vaccine, um, so they've uh, already vaccinated more than half of the population. Uh, and um, my understanding is that they they went there, Meta um, Frederiksen and um, and then Sebastian Kurz from Austria, to try and um, persuade Israel to give up some of the supply uh, when they. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I I guess that's uh, that's the whole plan here to um, to get some extra supply because we are in short supply. Denmark is one of the few countries that. Uh, um, that has sort of 100% utilization rate of the vaccine doses that we get, but uh, we don't get enough. Right. Yeah. So uh, you know th that takes us to this uh, this post pandemic period. So we have a bit of a start and stop here. It's not clear, you know, when we're going to get the all clear sign, and even if we do, whether or not there's going to be continued vaccination efforts. But by and large, we should be in the clear at some point beginning of the new year at a minimum by uh you know spring of 2022 since that's when the end of the northern hemisphere uh winter season is the question then becomes what does the economy look like then uh it sounded to me like when you were talking about the rollover that we're mm. seeing in china and then eventually potentially moving on to other places that uh are moving through this 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 period 
it doesn't actually look gangbusters in the way that other people are saying. No. Uh, and if we combine the scenario um, that I depicted on, on the Federal Reserve with a less benign balance sheet policy, so fewer purchases, uh, maybe already by summer, uh, with a fiscal impulse that will not be allowed to be as loose when you uh, when we look towards 2022 and 2023, then I actually think there is a, a risk of, um, of quite a similar pattern to what we saw after the great financial crisis. So a huge boom in nominal growth rates before a second setback. Uh, not a deep one, but a second setback in 22. And um, I think the, the clear reason why we could have a setback in 22 is that as soon as we are, uh, I would say, without a big virus spread, then I would argue that it becomes politically unpalatable to keep aiding um, companies uh, with liquidity issues, for example. So uh, if there is a wave of bankruptcies, we will see it after uh, we are done vaccinating, I think. Right. And what does that mean for when you talk about companies uh, uh, not getting a, a break for the EU? Uh, you know, in the Eurozone, Italy, uh, they have massive uh, government debt mm. and the ECB is buying up their bonds. But really, you know, that state aid, uh, it, which is illegal under the normal rules, once the normal rules apply, what's going to happen? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, in Europe, we haven't even started uh, the eight programs in any size yet. Uh, we had um, an agreement on a sort of common European Union budget last year uh, with new euro area bonds included. Uh, so this was a recovery fund of 750 billion euros. Uh, but we haven't really seen uh, the first utilization of this uh, recovery fund yet. Uh, and um, yeah, when you when you know the European Union and when you've worked with the European Union, uh, you basically also know that uh, the peak in this recovery fund will be in 2023 or something like that. It will take ages for, for the European Union to, to actually utilize the recovery fund. Um, so I think Europe is a different case to US. Uh, I think the US is much more agile in its approach to, to fiscal stimulus uh, compared to the euro area. Uh, and therefore the euro area will have sort of a, a less volatile uh, road ahead, but clearly also with less growth. Right. Um, last thing before we get to the questions, Andreas, is uh, there was one chart that I think we missed out on that I yeah. wanted you to speak to, and that had to do with uh, debt issuance and, and liquidity in yeah. the Powell Fed versus the Bernanke and Yellen Fed. Can you talk to that chart? Yes. Uh, I mean, this is a bar chart showing monthly developments. Um, so first of all, uh, the top of the chart shows the amount of debt issued per month in the U.S., uh, and the red bars show the actual needed um, debt per month. Uh, so as you can see, there are several months with a substantial overfinancing in 2020, uh, not least in the second quarter of, of 2020, uh, which means that uh, the U.S. Treasury built up a lot of cash over the year. Um, they, they simply kept preparing for a bigger fiscal deal than what actually happened. Uh, and therefore, uh, the first thing that Yellen did uh, when she took over the, the reins in the U.S. Treasury uh, was basically to tell the U.S. Treasury not to issue anything at all. Um, so if you look at, at the projections in the, in the grayscale area, uh, then um, yeah, we, 
basically have no issuance in U.S. Treasuries over the next five months. This is, of course, before a potential Bidenomics plan. Uh, but still, uh, they, they simply plan on underfinancing over the next uh, months to spend the cash that they hold idle at the um, Federal Reserve, which means that banks will get all of this cash. Right. And so, I mean, from a bond market perspective, just going back to that whole uh, topic that we're talking about, I mean, the way that I'm looking at that is that there's a dearth of, uh, of risk-free assets, that if you want to invest in treasuries, you're not going to get them because they're not going to be issuing them. And so the treasuries that actually exist and that are out there, there's going to be people scrambling to get those treasuries. Uh, is that the right way to look at it? And if so, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, you, you could argue that. Uh, and we already saw this week that uh, we had a repo squeeze in the 10-year space, um, basically meaning that uh, someone was looking for, for a bond and wasn't able to find it. Um, so I guess that could be a sign of it. Um, the reason why I think this will actually lead to higher interest rates this time around, at least in the long end, is uh, this SLR relief discussion that we had earlier. Uh, since banks will be... Uh, flooded with dollar liquidity due to this drawdown of the uh, U.S. Treasury cash balance. Um, the cash can either be parked at the U.S. Treasury account or at commercial banks. And now they will um, they will move to commercial banks. Uh, and due to this uh, supplementary leverage ratio, uh, banks will likely have to, to offload to Treasury positions as a result of this influx of dollar liquidity. Um, and that wouldn't usually be the case because usually when there's an, a big addition of dollar liquidity, it is due to the Fed buying bonds. And currently it is more due to a technicality of money moving from the U.S. Treasury account to commercial banks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Right. So uh, I think we've gotten to the end of our uh, normal uh, interview period, and that gives us the opportunity to open it up for questions. I just want people who are watching to know that you can add in questions for the next, uh, say, uh, 15 to 20 minutes before we end. Uh, but we already have a number of questions for you, Andreas. And so I'm going to start going through those now. Uh, let's start with the first question here from Chris. Uh, he asks, Andreas, which countries have more influence in terms of FX flow? As I hope to get a grasp of the bigger, the biggest players, as they should have the most influence on the flow and direction of the market, is it dominated by the United States or is the EU, UK, and China, Hong Kong, Japan uh, as well? And also, uh, should we also drill down to institutions versus retail and the commercials versus uh, speculative uh, investors? Yeah, I would still argue that uh, the FX space is very driven by institutionals. Um, so we haven't seen the same kind of development as we have in the equity market in 2020 with retailers um, being on top of the price action. Uh, we haven't seen that to the same extent in FX markets at all. Uh, so it's, it's a very institutionalized um, market right now, I would argue. And if you look at uh, where, trade is, uh, where, where trade is heavy, um, then it's clearly in London. Uh, so yeah, trading via London is, is by far the biggest. Um, but if you look at, at the biggest players, then uh, obviously you have a few 
huge Chinese funds. Um, uh, the SAFE fund is, is, is one. And then uh, also the, um, uh, the sovereign wealth fund is, is very huge. Uh, so Asian sovereign wealth funds are very, very big in FX. Um, and um, institutions in, um, in Europe are also very big due to the big pension schemes in, in many European countries. Uh, so these are the kind of players that um, that are, are are driving the price action. I would argue mostly in uh, in FX markets. Yeah, and you know one of the the parts of the question that I was getting is is he uh, when he was talking about FX flow and he was looking at it from a regional basis. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what he meant in terms of who's who's creating that flow, but maybe mm. it's either trade flows that he's talking about or. He's talking about, uh, you know, reserve currency flows, uh, you yeah. know, major crosses versus minor crosses. Yeah. But in that sense, I think the Asian accounts are the most interesting. Um, they've been uh, clearly uh, the front runners on um, on dollar developments often. Um, and and I think it's it's usually uh, driven by by policies from the Fed actually um, uh, when it's it all boils down boils down because when the Fed adds a lot of dollar liquidity to markets, then it becomes a whole lot easier for uh, for example central banks in in Asia to um, swallow some of those dollars uh, and sell the local currency. Uh, so they actually usually build up FX reserves when the Fed prints a lot of dollar. Dollars. Um, so ultimately, it boils down to the Federal Reserve, even if these Asian players are very big. So here's another question uh, that came early for you. Uh, this is from Greg, and he said, Hi, Andreas, watched you on RV back in July. I think that was when you and I were talking, Andreas. He said it was very helpful. Uh, at a high level, my thesis is there are two sides to the FX trade. It's the developed world looking for opportunity in EM returns, and then there's the EM looking to developed world for safe havens to protect wealth. Mm -hmm. At a high level, do you agree? That's the first question. And then he has some other questions. Let's uh, start with that one. Yes, and I think the best practical example of that is uh, is Turkey. Um, we know that, for example, Western European institutional players from time to time look towards Turkey to find some carry. Um, and we also know that Turkish players from time to time has to seek shelter in uh, in the euro. Um, so I think that's the best practical example of, of his uh, thesis. I think it's spot on. Excellent. So uh, other parts of this question here, um, he's also asking about uh, people looking for opportunity are investing more freely so they're likely to behave differently to those to retain wealth. How does someone in EM looking out uh, trying to find a safe haven asset judge the current FX rates and changes? How do you determine what the current fair FX rate is for a market? And the context here is that Greg is South African. Uh, I would argue that the best gauge of that is the good old purchasing power parity. Uh, so you need to look at relative inflation between the EM currency and the safe haven currency that you're looking at uh, to, to construct the fair value model over time. Um, obviously, if you have um, very, very big amounts of inflation, then your currency should weaken over time to reflect that. Right. Now, uh, another question here from Aaron. He's, his question is about currency pairs using the Norwegian krona as the denominator rather than the U.S. dollar. And he says, Norway has a ton of assets backing their mm. fiscal spending. 
i.e., while other countries are printing to spend for fiscal needs and increasing the supply of their currencies, the krona is being bought back by the government by selling their real assets. Uh, yeah. The question, I guess, is uh, what do you make of that uh, of that formulation? Uh, I think it's spot on. Um, uh, it's basically the only country that sells foreign assets to um, fund its deficit uh, instead of printing new um, currencies in, in local terms. Uh, so all other big countries, they print local currency to, to fund the deficit, while Norway sells foreign currency and buy um, buy still uh, the Norwegian krona to to fund the deficit. Uh, I'm I'm still a bit puzzled why the Norwegian krona has been strengthened more uh, on on this story uh, because it's been unfolding since yeah spring 2020, uh, and I think the um, the issue is that if you look at the uh, sovereign wealth fund in Norway. It is now, I think, roughly three times as big as the uh, GDP, um, and therefore uh, this wealth fund is basically the one to watch uh, in terms of flows in the Norwegian krona as well. Uh, when equities rally a lot, then um, due to uh, the hedging program that uh, they probably have in, in place, then they will end up selling foreign uh, FX and buy, uh, buying Norwegian krona in, in, in those uh, hedging programs. So it depends a, lot, a whole lot on this sovereign wealth fund, uh, and you basically shouldn't look too much to domestic developments in Norway any longer. Yeah, when you look at uh, the European Union and associated countries, uh, we talked about Switzerland. Uh, we talked about Norway. What about uh, uh, Sweden and Denmark, uh, which also have their own currencies? Um, the Swedish krona is is a decent bet, I would say, into the second quarter. Um, maybe mostly due to the fact that the Swedish krona is very linked to the um, global trade cycle. Uh, and it is a strong cycle that we see right now and into the beginning of the second quarter. I think it will falter again in the second half of the year. But uh, in the very short run, the Swedish krona seems like a decent pick. Um, and in terms of the Danish krona, it's a pretty boring currency since it's just a, um, a picked currency versus the euro. Uh, but currently, there is a, a small interesting story in Denmark as there is basically no liquidity at all in the Danish krona system, uh, which has led to very uh, elevated Danish krona interest rates. Uh, and I think this is something that will have to um, to carry spillovers to a stronger Danish krona over time. Interesting. So, you know, that dichotomy between the Danish and the Swedish krona, I think, are interesting in terms of thinking about policy, because where we've had an increase in global rates, it's been more aggressive in the United States, less aggressive in Europe. Uh, it's more likely that Europe is going to be pinned, uh, and obviously, therefore, you would expect the Danish krona uh, rates to be pinned, uh, Danish uh, interest rates to be pinned. W what does that mean in terms of Danish versus Swedish krona, in terms of degrees of, of flexibility for the respective central banks? Um, it means a whole lot. Uh, I, I think if you look at the past 10 years, it's been very clear uh, empirically that this, the Swedish central bank has a, a lot more flexibility compared to the Danish central bank. 
the Danish Central Bank uh, in practice almost um, mirrors the European Central Bank one-to-one. Uh, there are, of course, few uh, times when that's not the case, but it, it, then it's basically driven by um, by the exchange rate. Um, so the flexibility is much, much larger in Sweden. Okay, great. Uh, let, let's move on to the next currency area around Europe uh, with Attila. He has a question on uh, Central Europe. He says, what is Andreas's view on Central European currencies in relation to EUR, such as the Hungarian forint and the Polish zloty? I think if you look at Poland, Czech Republic, and, and Hungary, uh, what you should know when you trade euro versus those three is that they are what I would call high beta uh, currencies to, to the German development. So if you believe that Germany is going to do well, then you should buy Poland instead, for example, since Poland gains uh, beta one, one and a half to, to the German performance. Uh, so currently, I would say that it's a decent case to belong um, the uh, Central European currencies versus the euro. Uh, but it is also a case that uh, will lose momentum as soon as the German manufacturing sector rolls over into the second half of the year. So I think it's a, a trade that could work into the reopening here, but I wouldn't hold on to it into uh, the second half of the year. Okay, that, that's great. Uh, here's uh, another question on more currencies. Uh, Roberto Perez, uh, he asked, what's your view on EM currencies like Brazil and Turkey, which you've already talked about, but also Russia? Yeah, uh, Russia is, is a special case due to the ongoing risk of sanctions. Um, I would actually argue that uh, the risk for the ruble has increased markedly with uh, Joe Biden in the White House. Um, while the risk for the Chinese renminbi has decreased markedly with Joe Biden in the White House. Uh, so R Russia, I would stay off Russia simply due to the uh, political risk with, with Biden in, in, uh, in the White House. Uh, and then generally speaking, I'm not too optimistic on what I call offensive EM uh, uh, or aggressive EM positions such as uh, uh, Brazil or, um, or Turkey, uh, since they hold big current account deficits. And that could be an issue if dollar interest rates they um, increase further from here. Well, you know, when you speak about the dollar, um, uh, the the last question I'm going to ask you here is from Alvaro, who is asking, uh, what would make your uh, what would make you change your USD bullish uh, perspective? So when you talk about rates going up in the United States, relative rates obviously going up in mm -hmm. the U.S., what would make you think that uh, okay, I'm not bullish on the USD anymore? Uh, I think it, uh, it one scenario that could change my mind would be China adding more stimulus to the economy. Uh, so if China restarted the uh, credit cycle in, in China once again, then I would uh, probably turn around. Uh, and then another uh, risk uh, is the political risk in the US. I think we saw some early signs of it back in January with the Capitol Hill. Um, uh, scenario and and obviously that is a risk if if Joe Biden's administration manages to bananify the dollar, but I'm I'm basically not willing to say that they they will do so. Good, I think uh, this was a great uh, soup to nuts uh, conversation on currencies and the global uh, system. I really appreciate your taking the time to update us all, and I hope that uh, everyone enjoyed the conversation. I certainly did, Andreas. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.